1: Now, nah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, he is the most appeared guest in the history of this program. He just hadn't been on here lately because he's been real busy with real-world stuff, both on the planet and outside the planet, but we'll talk about that in a minute. He is Dr. Michael Siegel to you because he's got all those fancy letters after his name, but mostly we just ask him science questions because he can explain them so well that even I can understand them. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. No, compl- Hey, who's got it better than us, right? This is fun. Yeah. Um. I know we 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 don't worry about the mule. We just load the cart, and make you answer all this stuff about like political science and COVID and all this stuff. I'm actually going to give you your wheelhouse today. We're actually going to talk about space. Um, this is fun because one of the we've known each other. We've been friends for a couple of years. One of our running jokes is Armageddon, the movie. You know, we go we're going to blow the asteroid up because you on social media is always declaring like, no, this asteroid is not coming anywhere near us. This is stupid. This is a dumb clickbait headline. And I just think that documentary of Armageddon was very important to the existence of human <laughs> civilization. And especially now that we don't have Bruce Willis on the line to save us, I don't know what we're gonna do. I love Armageddon, it's a great movie. We actually did this though. We sent a probe. The numbers on this blow my mind, man. Put this one of the things I always ask you about space is put it in ways we can understand. This thing went three point something something billion miles round trip they landed on the asteroid they collected samples dust debris they have to open the seal tight in a controlled environment so they don't know what all is in there but they know they've got a pretty good sample here and they brought it back to earth and it took seven years like this is really really cool sci-fi stuff but we actually did this
0: yep this is the uh, osiris rex mission that we're talking about and um the idea is we want to get samples from an asteroid so we can see what they are composed of. We can do uh, experiments on isotopes and stuff like that and answer some of the most fundamental questions. One of the things we're still trying to figure out is how life started on Earth, how the solar system formed. And this, the asteroid, which is called Bennu, is very old, composed of very similar stuff to Earth, And so by getting a sample of it, we hope to answer some of these questions, see what its composition is, especially we're looking for things like that might be the building blocks of life. There are a lot of theories that maybe what got life going was asteroids and comets hitting the earth and materials from those beginning, the primordial soup that began life. And so this will help some answer some of those questions. Now, there was a mission a few years ago, a Japanese mission that returned some samples, uh, but with the... quantity of sample that's returned here, uh, like 12 ounces, I think, you know, almost three quarters of a pound, basically, of material is going to be, it's so much that we can, we will spend decades analyzing this. This will be like the moon rocks. People will spend their entire careers analyzing just a small sample of this. And it's a very impressive mission. What they did, the reason it traveled so far is Bennu passes near the Earth, but what you have to do is sort of sneak up on it in the orbit. Uh, so that you get you can match its orbit and then go into orbit around it, and then they sent the lander down and it just you could there's really cool video of this it came down with a little probe and it just sort of briefly touched down some dust kicked up it collected that dust pulled it into the spacecraft, then went back into orbit then broke orbit with Bennu and re rendezvoused with Earth, and um, yeah the capsule landed safely and they've retrieved it and they've actually. Uh, opened it to see what they have, and it's a lot of rock and dust. But uh, it's going to be, uh, you'll be hearing about the results of this for years.
1: Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. I'm going to do all kinds of, I'm just going to warn you now, there's going to be all kinds of references and quotes from Armageddon as we discuss this <laughs> for a lot of. But I want to start with one of them because it's one of the funnier things in the movie because it's not specific. And by the way, Billy Bob Thornton as the science NASA guy who's just so crushed by all this and realizes it's really on him to save the world. And he knows he's not up to it is a great character, by the way, for anybody that's ever dealt with government officials stuck in the middle. He really captures that. There's that part of the movie where they just look up and they go, well, how does this happen? How do we get a killer asteroid? And they go, well, we got a million dollar budget that allows us to track about 3% of the sky. And it's like, what the, what is it? Now we know that's not actually true, but there's a nugget of truth in that. We already joked about the headlines on this stuff. A killer asteroid coming close to earth and close to earth is like further than Venus. Break that down for us though. How much of this stuff are we actually tracking? How much of this is actually getting close? Cut through that a little bit because there is a nugget of truth in there a little bit.
0: Well, when the movie was made, Um, and, and for your listeners, I have a YouTube channel where I, I spent, I, the longest video I've made was breaking down Armageddon and so forth. And the movie Armageddon has, what it does is it takes real science and sort of Michael Bayifies it into something crazy and out there. And that's not really accurate. So it's, it's an interesting movie to talk about. And I agree with you, the cast in the movie is outstanding. It's not like Academy Award outstanding, but they all know what kind of movie they're in and do the appropriate job to, to that movie. But, um, at the time that movie was made, we had only documented a small percentage of the asteroids that were out there that could potentially endanger earth. And it was really after comet shoemaker Levy nine hit Jupiter, that Congress decided, all right, we need to make this a priority to map what's out there. And so they have been putting money into that for the last 25 years to try to identify every potential earth impacting asteroid. And Bennu is one of those. Um, it, will pass, in the late 22nd century, it will pass very close to Earth, and there's a a 0.04% chance it would impact, and it would be significant. It's a 500-meter-wide asteroid, so that might be one we want to use a DART-type mission to deflect if it comes to that, but we've probably, we have now, I believe, 95% of the near-Earth asteroids tracked that are potentially dangerous. Um, Now, that leaves out the elephant in the room, which is comets. Comets come from way outside in the solar system, and we don't know that they're here until they come up upon us. Around the same time the movie was made, a couple of years before, we had comet uh, Hayukitaki, which passed near Earth, and we didn't see it until a few months in advance. So uh, that's something that we do still worry about, and not much we can do about it at this point, unless we get like really huge infrared telescopes that can scan that the Oort cloud. But um, But, yeah, this is – it's – in that way, Armageddon is kind of a time capsule of a time when we hadn't seen most of the near-Earth asteroids, and now we do have a handle on most of them, and especially the really dangerous impactors that could cause a cataclysm.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Okay, part of the Armageddon movie, Billy Bob Thornton's explaining, like – OK, well, these cities are exploding and getting raining fire from the heaven. And he just kind of waves like, oh, those are nothing. Those are the size of basketballs and Volkswagens and things like that. You know, the size of the Volkswagen took out Paris, that sort of stuff. Again, Bayified is a great term for it. They blew it up a little bit. Give us the size, though, this asteroid that we landed, the probe on. How big is it? Give us a kind of a comparison. Don't do that. How many buses will fit into Texas or any of that? You know, how many hot dogs go into Topeka, Kansas, or any of that kind of crazy online stuff. (laughs) Give us the sizes, though, because how big of an – because asteroids and space things, they hit Earth all the time. We just don't talk about them, but they're usually smaller. Something that Mm -hmm. made, like, Crater Lake, that's a lot bigger. How big would that have been compared to what we landed this probe on?
0: Anything that's about, say, 50 to 100 meters in size or bigger is potentially dangerous. Uh, The Tunguska impactor was probably about 50 meters in size, and that hit with the powers of an atomic bomb. If you go on YouTube and type uh, Chelyabinsk, if you can spell it, uh, you'll find a video of the meteor that exploded over Chelyabinsk about 15 years ago that was about 50 meters in size and went off with the power of an atomic bomb. Now, it exploded way up in the atmosphere, but it still shattered thousands of windows and caused injuries and so forth. If either of those had hit a city, it would have been like Hiroshima. That's the power of that. With Bennu or something like that, you're talking about a 500-meter-wide asteroid, so something with a 1,000 times the mass. Uh, so it could be potential. Now, there's a lot of factors in there. The angle and speed it comes in is the most important. Uh the energy released by the impactor is equal to the mass times the velocity squared. So the, that's what makes asteroids so dangerous. They come in with speeds of tens of kilometers a second. And so that energy that they hit with is extremely powerful, even for a small one. And so when you're talking about something the size of Bennu, that would be a, a regional catastrophe if it were to hit. And so that's the kind of thing we keep an eye on. And we've tracked its orbit pretty precisely. but Bennu is also a very active asteroid it, it can it releases water and stuff into the atmosphere into this into space it also can be perturbed by the orbits of other planets so we can only really give a percentage when we're talking about more than 10 20 years in the future yeah not now, to the, british, joining us. With the press we were you're talking about how i get mad annoyed at the press the press and the british press in particular have a tendency to say this asteroid is closing in on earth which always happens they're on orbits they pass each other that happens Uh, usually if something were dangerous you'd be hearing a lot more about it
1: Dr. Michael joining us. This brings us to another thing, though, um, where they talk about when they actually get on the asteroid. They're like, okay, so this is basically the most horrible environment you can possibly think of, even though space is trying to kill you every second. They talk about, you know, you landed us on a titanium plate instead of where we thought we could drill through the, you know, the not titanium plate. When they actually start breaking this thing down what are they looking at mineral wise that we would recognize and i know this is funny because right now apple's running all these ads about the titanium iphone and they show the you know the little speck in space becoming titanium and landing on earth and magically becoming an apple iphone that's running on all major media now that's not exactly how that works right what are they looking for what does it tell us because as big as space is there's a lot of elements out there but we got a pretty good handle on what most of those elements are right we just don't know The composition of them, what else is in there, why they stay together through space, that sort of thing. Is that where we're going with some of this?
0: Well, the asteroids are made of the same kind of stuff that Earth was, um, but they are in a very primordial state. They're still in that state that they were four and a half billion years ago. So when we land on the surface of an asteroid, we're seeing the kind of stuff that was in the solar system when Earth was formed. Earth's surface has changed over the last four and a half billion years. We have rain, we have oceans, we have wind, we have organic creatures, we have plants that changes the composition of the surface and so forth. And so uh, we really, uh, with the asteroids, we get a pristine look. Um, some of the stuff that's on there is is pretty interesting. I mean, there's asteroids with lots of uh, rear Earth minerals and gold and stuff like that, that if you were able to mine them and bring them back to earth would be uh, a huge boon to the tech industry and in the movie uh don't look up they talk about this it's a little uh, silly but they talk about how there's so many rare earth minerals on there you know everyone would get rich if they were able to capture it
1: yeah dr michael siegel joining us one more thing on this asteroid thing um we talked about the 50-meter asteroid that blew up in the atmosphere. That was a pretty big one. That would have done significant damage and did in some ways. What does it take to actually survive our atmosphere? Because for all the, you know, doomsaying and stuff, our atmosphere works really, really well. Because we're, you know, the only planet we know of that has intelligent life on it. So it's working pretty good, Right you talked about things like angle, you know, velocity, there's a lot to it. If you hit it the wrong velocity, we know from a million sci-fi, you know, you can actually skip off the atmosphere if you come in at the wrong angle. What does it take to survive going through the atmosphere to actually get to the Earth? Because as much as people fear this thing, the atmosphere does a really good job of protecting us, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, against a really big asteroid, it wouldn't be able to do much. But when an asteroid hits the atmosphere, you know, it creates this bright light what we call a meteor and what what's happening there is that it's as it hits it's it's like when spacecraft are in the atmosphere it compresses the air in front of it which when air is compressed it gets super hot and that what we call a blade heats up the surface of the asteroid and so with someone some with depending on the composition you know some of these are very rocky some of them more like rock piles like gravel depending on the composition and the structure They might actually reach the atmosphere, reach the surface. We do get asteroids landing every day. Or they might blow up. Uh, That's what happened to Chelyabinsk and with Tunguska, that they got so hot, the asteroid actually exploded in midair because of that heat. So it really depends on the composition and the the, um, structure of it. And that's one of the things that uh, we learned from the DART mission, where we tried to redirect the asteroid. We redirected it more than we expected, because of the composition and the structure that when the when the probe hit, there was a sort of backsplash that we didn't expect that actually gave it a more of a uh, velocity kick than we had expected. And so one of the things we're trying to figure out is uh, what these the composition and structure of these asteroids is, are so we know what to expect if one of them becomes dangerous.
1: Michael Siegel, join us. you talked about the dart mission put these two things together because when you talked about that composition, that's what they're looking at here. They're going to break down this debris and the dust and whatever else they get in the sample. How much can you extrapolate that out? Because like you said, these asteroids, they've been out there for a long time. They all have different paths, which means they pick up different stuff as they, you know, transverse the solar system or wherever they came from. Every one of these are going to be a little bit different. How much can you extrapolate out to the other asteroids you're going to see? Because I got to imagine when you're talking, about, you know, to go to the Armageddon thing, if you cordial drill these things, they're probably all very different once you get into them. So how do you scientifically, you know, you're kind of shotgun in this a little bit. It's like, OK, we think this thing is 40 percent, this 20 percent, this whatever. How do you start breaking that down to actually have some kind of a I don't know. Do you have a big flow chart at NASA? I'm like, here's how we figure out how an asteroid works. What is it? practically though because that's what they're trying to do is we just need some kind of a formula to figure out what these things are as fast as possible right
0: we're we're, that's a very good question we're we're pretty limited Uh, most of the asteroids like Bennu are dark and so they don't give off a lot of light of their own which would allow us to learn a lot more about them we can with big telescopes we can get as much reflected light off them as we can but uh it, our, our ability to understand them is limited. I think if we were talking about something that was potentially dangerous, one of the first things we would do is launch a small probe to get a much better idea of its composition and structure. Is this a big, solid object or is it a rock pile? That's gonna very much change how we approach uh, deflecting a dangerous asteroid.
1: Yeah, michael siegel joining us okay another scene in armageddon they got really ridiculous they pull the gun out and they fight over the nuclear warhead right and uh, will Patton, who's one of the most underrated character actors we got just looks at the guy what are you doing with a gun in space and deadpans it perfectly great line my producer tk turbo sent me a question for you because i even though he has your email he always goes through me how you doing tk Mm -hmm. um this is actually a fun question he goes he asked about spin launch and zero gravity and a gun in space. And then going back to that, and it goes like this, like what are the expected forces of projectile will encounter when transitioning from a vacuum at a high, ridiculously high velocity when it encumbers regular atmospheric pressure again, actually in a bigger sense, that's kind of what these asteroids are doing when they hit the atmosphere. Would yep. this be not be problematic in some way? So when they pull the gun out in space, even inside the space shuttle or wherever they were, that would still affect ballistics. I would think somewhat, but talk about that because that actually it sounds a little silly. It was silly in the movie. That actually's got some pretty solid science around it of how things actually work in vacuums and non-vacuums, right? Because that's that's a lot of space dynamics.
0: Um I'd have to think about that some more because uh, when you're talking about moving from vacuum to atmosphere, that's when you get that compressed air and that heating and so forth that would cause the you know a bullet like that to, to heat up or tumble and so forth. When you're talking about bullets in space, you're, you know, this is sort of the thing we always talk about in physics, ignore air when you do this calculation. So the spin and the motion would stay the same. A bullet fired in space would theoretically maintain the same velocity and have an infinite range. Uh, When when it transits to air, that's when it's going to start slowing down and the spin is going to change and so forth. So, I think the big thing about firing guns in space is you don't want to penetrate the hull and cause the air to get out. That, that would be bad. And on an asteroid very- like the one in the movie where the gravity is relatively low, the recoil would, would throw you pretty good.
1: I, I don't think people understand if you shot a handgun in low gravity, it would probably, you know, it would take you a while to stop. Um, this is funny because the original Jules Verne stuff where they shoot people to the moon in a cannon. <laughs> Which is kind of the reverse of what you're talking about. You're going from, you know, gravity to vacuum. You know, it's a little silly, but he kind of had the right idea in some ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, in theory you could do that. In practice, the G forces they experience would be way too high and would kill the people on board. But in you know, the volat- what the way you get things into space is you make them go really fast. You know, you have to get up to many kilometers per second to get or to get out of the Earth's atmosphere, to get out away from Earth's gravity. And so there are various ways to achieve that. Uh, You could shoot it out of a cannon if you didn't care what happened to the crew. Um, There's also have been proposals in the past for magnetic catapults that would, you put them in sort of, say, in a mountain and accelerate a cargo using magnets to extremely high speed and launch it into space. What we use for uh, rockets turns out to be the most practical, where you basically get on top of a mound of explosives and push the astronauts to as much G as is a safe, and uh, and then they are, are in space. But ultimately, Vern was right that uh, it is about how fast you can get people going. So whatever method you use to get to that speed to escape Earth's gravity is what the velocity you need.
1: And that gives us two more great quotes from Armageddon. The one, Steve Buscemi, who's great in anything ever, he's ever is, like, we're sitting on top of so many explosives put together by the lowest bidder, which yeah. is Accurate and something that's actually been brought up before. Alan Shepard famously, they had a technical issue on his Mercury launch, and he finally just said, fix your little problem and light this candle, one of the great astronaut stories of all time after waiting around for four hours. And then the other one of the the one shuttle commander who ended up dying later, spoiler alert if you haven't seen a 25-year-old movie by this point, um, he says this is a kick-ass ride as they're going up on the rocket. Both of those quotes are actually pretty accurate and pretty true.
0: Yeah. um, Let's see. With the with the ride, you have to uh, one of the best communicators on that subject is Chris Hatfield, the Canadian astronaut who's been up in space many times and talks about how you get very focused. It's very intense. And then once you get into space, it's like you're floating and that that transition from being so focused and one of the most intense moments of your life to suddenly, oh, wow, I'm in space. And uh, Shatner also talked a little bit about that with his trip into space. But uh, the Shepard story, and we do try to do a lot of quality control. And considering how complex the early space missions were, uh, that we only had one real failure with Apollo 13 is pretty remarkable. Shepard's story is actually interesting because he was waiting in the capsule so long, uh, his bladder was full, and uh, they actually turned off the electronics so he could uh, relieve himself and then wait for things to dry out and then turn everything back on and and launch him.
1: Yeah, they don't put that one in the movie though, but uh
0: they put uh, it in the right stuff though.
1: Yeah, they did. They did right stuff is such a good movie. Not the remake that was meh, the original right stuff fantastic movie. All right.
0: Uh, we were talking about uh, on Twitter today best ensemble casts. That's an amazing ensemble That's- cast for right stuff
1: that's up there um i love the right stuff they got jaeger Wright, who's of course one of my childhood heroes like when he throws a fit where he basically takes an airplane so high it implodes just to throw a fit and make a point is just one of the great and it actually happened yeah it's just one of the like that 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 couldn't have really happened no that really happened
0: just to prove a point
1: like what in the world
0: and then that great line is that a man you're dang right it is (laughs) (laughs)
1: Dr. Michael Siegel. Uh, okay, you are a man of letters. You are an academic. You walk among the groves of academe. You are a scientist par excellence. You're one of those real smart people on the planet. When's the last time you thought of the Roman Empire? Uh,
0: probably this morning because I was playing Rome Total War. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm actually reading um, Mary Beard's SPQR right now. It was kind of ironic. that. So if you, for those of you who are not on social media last week someone asked, I just read that men think about the Roman Empire about once a week, is that true? And a bunch of men chimed in, yes. <laughs> and uh, just by coincidence, I happened to be reading SPQR, which is uh, Mary Bird's history, kind of of both the history of Rome and the history of the history of Rome. And uh, I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's something I think about fairly often. So we were we were talking about why that is, why people are so fascinated with Rome. And uh, I came up with a few reasons, and this is just me as an amateur, not as an actual historian historian, but um, one, Rome is extremely well-documented. There are contemporary historians and writers whose works are preserved. They were preserved by medieval monks, so we have a first-hand or a second-hand record of, of what happened. Like Cicero, we have hundreds of his letters about what was going on with his life. when He lived in very interesting times when they were transitioning from a republic to an empire. Uh, and the second is, I think it's very, there are a lot of similarities between the Roman Empire and the United States. You know, the, you know, I've referred to the last 70 years as kind of the la- the Pax Americana since the end of World War II. It's been one of those peaceful eras in history. And I think that the United States leadership on the international stage and our creation of alliances, especially the nuclear era, is is the reason for that. And I also think, in a somewhat mythologized way for men specifically that Rome represents a kind of healthy masculinity, if you will, you know, the, the idea of strength and honor and service and serving something greater than yourself. That's a little bit mythologized over the millennia, but I think that also is something that uh, creates a fascination with people, at least, especially at least with me, it does.
1: And the thing about it is because Rome had all kinds of problems like, you know, enslavement and murder and corruption. And if you've watched anything about Rome, you know, all the bad parts, too. You know what it really is and why it's in our consciousness. You just touched on it. And I'm an amateur historian. If you want a professional historian, you got the wrong Donaldson. That's my father. You're going to have to get him for this because he actually taught history and had the degrees in it and all that fun stuff. The thing about Rome, though, is it's it's not only was an important worldwide empire, most of the known world at the time they were the first where, you know, it was documented. We still speak and understand and write in Latin. Yeah. So we, so it was well, it was just the perfect storm of expanding technology where you had the worldwide empire, you had trades. So the rest of the world was very aware of Rome, you know, North Africa, Eng, what is now called England, the Far East, the subcontinent, India, like everybody knew about Rome. So all these other countries were also writing about him. But they actually had, you know, basically a worldwide monetary system, a worldwide language. If you were a citizen of Rome, you understood that. You have major religions like Christianity that came to prominence through the Roman Empire and it became part of that. You know, I'm not saying mythology to denigrate. it. I'm just saying part of the Christian story yep. comes from that. And so does the Muslim story. And so does the Jewish story for your folks. You know, that the Roman Empire is a big deal to the Jewish people. You have all these other things that revolve around the Roman Empire that makes it an important thing, and then it just hit the right point in history where you have all the scribes, you have a language that has endured to where we actually understand it. We don't need a Rosetta Stone for it. They took a lot of what the Greeks were already doing and amalgamated it into that, so it was like a remix and a continuation that built onto it. There was just a lot of factors into it that make it a fascinating period of time.
0: Yeah, and you hit, you touched on this, that the idea of Romans wasn't just people who lived in Italy. They would give citizenship to peoples that they had assimilated, peoples they had conquered and so forth, that people all over the empire were citizens of Rome. They had classes of citizenship, this really amazingly complicated citizenship system, but they were very much a thing of, we'll make other people Romans, which was very different from the Greeks. The Greeks were very restrictive in who could be a citizen. But the Romans were like, hey, you know, you obey our laws and send us tribute. You're Roman. It's fine.
1: Yep. It's all fun and games till the Gauls show up to sack Rome and then things get (laughs) real. But that's another topic for another day, our good friend, Dr. Michael Siegel. Uh, love talking to you. This space stuff is really cool. I'm glad we actually get to talk about just the space stuff and not some political something. We'll do that the next time you come on. Let folks know how they can keep up with you, what you've got going on, because you've actually been tinkering with the spacecraft that you have to mind and babysit. Had a little trouble with that, and you got it fixed out. Let folks know how to can follow you keep up with you until
0: we get you back on the program. We have a, a few issues with guidance that we're working on. Um, so the spacecraft's healthy, and we're getting good data, but it, we need to to fix that problem. So there's a, updates on the Goddard website for that. But um, uh, where you can find me, Ordinary Times is probably the best place. That's where I do most of my writing. Um, if you just go to YouTube and type in Michael Siegel Astronomy, you'll find my YouTube channel where I talk a lot about movies, including my big Armageddon video. Uh, and uh, I have a future video coming up on the Ahsoka show and on the Apollo 13 and uh yeah, that's where you'll you'll find me. It's a great YouTube
1: channel. I've actually got to be on it once. I killed all his ratings, so he hadn't had me back yet. But the Oppenheimer one did really well. Um, but no, great YouTube channel. We're gonna link to it, hertel.substack.com, on all the show notes. Make sure you get all that. My friend, so great to catch up with you. So great to talk science because it really is an amazing edge. We didn't even talk about your favorite telescope and some of the stuff it's doing. It's just it's like every day something's coming out of the James yep, Webb. There's telescope. an image
0: behind me from a, a yep. Herbicaro object that JWST just took. So it's, I thought uh, it was a
1: journey album cover, but I'm glad you cleared that up because it looks amazing. <laughs> uh, you'll see that on the video when the Good Talks comes out. Michael Siegel, thank you, sir. Appreciate your time.
0: Oh, glad to be on.
1: Yes, sir. All the music on her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the her Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from DC and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised for the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late night comedy style climate podcast, working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over a hundred episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.